2: Hey, everybody. Welcome to Mission's end of year episode. All three of us are on the mic again. We have Albert, Jeremy, and myself. And so many people liked our Thanksgiving episode that we are back. But if you didn't hear that one, let's do guys a quick round of introductions. Albert with you first.
3: What's up, everybody? My name is Albert. I am the host of IT Visionaries. I get to talk some of the top tech leaders in the world. And we're excited to share some of their wisdom, I guess, today, huh? I learned a few things in 2022. Can't wait to share them.
2: Oh, yeah. Jeremy.
1: (laughs) Nice. Hey, everybody. This is Jeremy, host of Marketing Trends, where if you don't know, you should know that I am talking every day with the most brilliant marketing leaders, chief marketing officers, vice presidents of marketing, brands like ESPN, Morgan Stanley, Aon Holdings, United Health Group. The list goes on and on. I love what i do and just like albert i heard a lot of interesting things in the past year and i'm excited to drop a couple of nuggets on us today thanks
3: hey for the record i call we used to you know for my little children we would call nuggets like poop (laughs) (laughs) like dropping nuggets so when you hear say that i'm like
2: you could take that either way Uh, (laughs) gold wisdom nuggets thank you for clarifying i was really worried about that
3: man yeah there we go there we go i like that (laughs)
2: All right, I am Stephanie Postles, I'm the CEO of mission.org and the host of Up Next in commerce. I'm talking to the best D2C founders and digital leaders at the Fortune 1000. And I also have really great nuggets to share today. So with that, are you guys ready to dive into today's mission end of year episode and 2023 predictions?
1: Let's do it. We need sound effects. But yes, we're ready.
2: Am I kicking it off? Yeah, let's kick it off. I mean, what are we talking about today?
1: surprising themes, you know, developments in in 2022. I know something I've been asking a lot of marketing leaders is something around, you know, employee experience and getting their thoughts on what they're doing to enhance that in 2022 and beyond. So that's something that I'd like to get into if we can and also hear your thoughts on.
2: So, before we get into like the nitty-gritty themes and predictions and whatever tangents Albert wants to go on. Let's first hear about, you know, overall, like how did 2022 go? I mean, what were favorites from the show or yeah, how did this year feel, Albert?
3: Well, I always say this about every year when I think about it is it's when it's happening, you don't feel like anything big is happening. I felt like just like many other years, it's a progression of things that are building. It's only when you look back in time and which is why I'm excited here is when you look back and you think to yourself, has anything changed? I don't know if technologically things changed a lot this year. I mean, I'm sure there's progress. Don't get me wrong. But that's one of the things I always think about is like, even though we're making these steps and changes in technology, moving societies forward, moving businesses forward, when it's happening, you don't really, I don't feel like I feel it. You know what I mean? It's it's only when you look back and you say, oh, dang, a lot of things are changing. Probably my favorite parts of this past year were meeting some of the leaders, and which we'll talk about in a moment, that are actively... Breaking ground on possibly revolutionary things and those those conversations were the most exciting so I look forward to sharing some of the nuggets from there. when I think back on it, Ina Braverman from EcoWave power probably is doing something that could potentially be the world most transformational thing for the world so when you get to meet people like that that's pretty darn amazing except you find out that she's been working on it for you know decades <laughs> you know what I mean so like decades yeah. of progress, but he, it might the inflection might be here now.
2: Yeah, might just work. All right, Jeremy, I mean, you get to have some of the best brands on marketing trends. So what are what's your high level takeaway for how that's, that show has been going?
1: Look, it's really similar, I think, to a lot of what Albert said at the tail end there. Just the brilliant minds that I get to connect with on mar- on marketing trends is just ridiculous. I believe that the chief marketing officer role on the executive leadership team now is such an interesting role. I think it's one of the most interesting roles, if not the most interesting, because in 2022, to be a modern day CMO, you have to be really good at some really high level things. And and, and a theme that I've seen across some, just some epic brands. I mean, we I recently spoke to Linda Lee. Linda Lee's the CMO for Campbell Soup, right? Multi-billion dollar global brand. And just to hear about how She navigates supporting her leaders, how she hires high performers, how she views marketing wrapping up the year, doing more with less. Very similar to uh, Marcelo Pascoa. He leads marketing at at Coors, Coors Family of Beers. Just a brilliant marketing leader. And the same thing as you see these people who are having to fight even more now because companies are having to do more with less that ha- marketing has to fight even more now to prove that they're driving revenue, not just a cost center. And they're bringing a lot of value ar- across a spectrum of things. So some great dialogue this year. I mean, there was just incredible brands. I'll mention this one lastly. I just interviewed Rachel Conrad, who is the head of brand for the production board, uh, a small holding company uh, led by David Freeberg. Shout out to the Sultan of Science. Um, and the things that they're doing to innovate and support the world, decarbonization, things like that. I mean, just absolutely incredible to sit uh, toe-to-toe with these executives and learn from them and extract the wisdom of their brands. just so awesome. So I hope folks go check some of that out.
2: All right, two good ones for me. Well, I first get something that you guys don't really get I get a lot of really good free products true, all the time true. sent to me. I'm just basking in the best direct-to-consumer products out there.
3: Hey, I got to call out my boy Mahesh over there at Kajabi. You owe me, baby.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that's that's one thing where I'm like, the amount of things that I got to tr- got to try and like see and be on the forefront of like some of these newer brands coming out, it was epic. So I'll just kind of say that first. And second, I mean, I just think through, yeah, all the amazing leaders that I got to talk to and companies that I got to see in the early stages then get acquired, multiple companies that came on the show. We talked with them. They were just starting out and then they soon after got acquired for pretty great numbers. And then also watching companies that I was bullish on completely implode and Uh. (laughs) go out of business. So it's been interesting watching what this market can do to people right now and do to companies. And it's been all over the map. So it's been a cool year. And I think 2023 will only be more of that, which will be interesting to watch. So with that, I think that we should start going into, you know, maybe some surprises or takeaways from 2022. I know our producers pick some of our favorite clips that, you know, either had the most traction or that we liked or whatever. And Jeremy, maybe we can start with you when it comes to marketing trends. What were some of the surprising themes or uh, developments in Yeah. This year.
1: Yeah. I mean, there were, there's a lot going on, you know, for marketing and for, for, for brands in in all industries. I mean, everyone has been impacted and will be impacted by the way this world is shifting. Um, and so one thing I, I really keyed in on, um, this past year was, was asking these leaders what they were doing to also double down on employee experience. You know, we talk a lot about customer experience and things like that, but, It seems super relevant, especially now, given the, you know, um, the the state of of people working at companies or choosing not to work at companies and the great resignation and the terms that have become popularized. But I really wanted to get some insight of how, you know, what are some of these marketing leaders doing to enhance employee experience? So we have one poll that I'll play here in a second. I just want to set this up. This is Stephanie Dobbs Brown, who's the chief marketing officer at a company called the Intercontinental Exchange or ICE, ICE. This is a Fortune 500 data and tech company, multi billion. It had seven billion last year. And this company was started by a guy named Jeff Sprecher in 1997. He bought a technology startup for $1 that was aimed at providing transparent pricing for electric power companies. Fast forward to today, this is a massive company with 10,000 employees. They own the New York Stock Exchange, uh, among other things. And this woman has been leading marketing there for a few years and she's responsible for all their marketing and brand and she led a really successful rebrand in 2022. She also headed up at Albert, you'll like this. She headed up the strategic partnership with McLaren Racing, also CNBC's Mad Money. And then she also, shout out to Little Wayne, super smart marketer. Let's see what she has to say about the employee experience at ICE.
4: I don't think you can understate the importance of the employee experience. And I think one of the things that I love about marketing, and I've said this Throughout my career is the influence that marketing can have on the culture of a company. You can't just market to customers, right? As humans, we're exposed to everything. And I think employees, to me, are the the most exciting part of a company because they're your salespeople, they're your advocates, they're your ambassadors, they're your references and your referrals. And I just don't think you can have one without the other. I think it's impossible to separate customers and employees. Now, I think the tactics that you use, right, are different, of course, you know, and the approach, the strategy you might take is is different. In my opinion, they go hand in hand. And I think, especially now, in kind of this new world that we're living in, where there's such a blurred line, that employee experience has to be top of mind when you're thinking about it, because you just, you simply can't talk to a customer in isolation.
1: Yeah, So, so you can see kind of one example of you know a brand that's taking you know taking some time to really engage with their folks and it's really consistent with some of these folks that have you know we just had eric Toda from meta on and he's head of their global social media and he he talked about your employees are your greatest customers right and they should be your greatest advocates and he he really kind of went on to talk about enabling employees to talk about the product talk about the story firsthand or you're doing them a disservice, which is kind of what Stephanie was also sharing before. So really interesting to, to see some of the things these, these brands are doing. And I think they've got to get this right because people care about what these brands are doing and we're moving into a very different world where people have a lot, a lot of choice and there's a lot of talent out there. So let's see what happens.
3: The biggest challenge she has is that everyone says this, but it's really hard to prove and it's really hard to do. From my experience, the bigger the company, the less likely any of this is true. I mean, so she's, she's trying to say she's developed, you know, she cares a ton about employee experience. I get that. Employee experience is important. I don't doubt it one bit. But when you have 10,000 people, there's no way 10,000 people are aligned. It's just not possible, right? Maybe you could get a small cohort of people that are aligned. Like you might get 30 people aligned. There's, it's not going to be 10,000. And if I think about her department, I know it's a big department, right? And I know there's going to be some type of conflict and it could be something small. It could be something big. It could be something as small as like, Hey, do we have to meet in office on Mondays? It could be even smaller. It's like, I don't like the snacks, but when people say employee experience, I would put a challenger out there is like for, especially for any big company is like, I agree that you want to do that. But it's just so hard to do. And I think, I think it's a worthwhile effort to try. But do I believe at any point that I think all people are aligned on the company's mission and experience and all that stuff? I'll never believe that. Not at a big company.
1: It's interesting to also another, you know, angle there is, you know, I think about diversity and inclusion, you know, being also an important like factor when it comes to the experience of employees and the culture there is diversity and inclusion, which is a big topic that comes up a lot. We had a company, Aon Holdings, come on a few weeks back. Marguerite is the chairman of Aon Holdings. And she talked about how like 20% of their executives, like bonuses are tied to diversity and inclusion and tied to the shifts. So I think if you start to creatively support leaders and weigh, you know, and actually weigh their bonuses and the benefits that they receive as a leader to what they're doing to support their teams and making them that diverse and including people. And I think that is where you'll start to see shifts in bigger organizations, super difficult. I mean, we worked at Google. We we know it's not not easy to just scale culture and be interesting to see, you know, some of these things or these larger brands are maybe putting their money where their mouth is too. So Stephanie, I mean, look, you also get a chance to really interact with some pretty amazing commerce leaders from epic brands. I know I'm not the only one here that would love to hear some of the stuff that you're, you know, really keying in on. Is there any kind of big takeaway or theme that you were excited about from the past year?
2: Yeah, so what's nice is because I get to talk to so many startup founders and, you know, large like Fortune 1000, digital transformation people, like everyone in between, there is always a similar theme and it's all around data this year. I mean, what we saw is that companies really had to transform very quickly over the past couple of years. They had to figure out how to keep up with the market and where consumers wanted to pay and just meet them everywhere. And then it had all this data coming in. And I think a lot of companies, especially, you know, actually all of them, big or small, are still trying to figure out how to wrangle this and use it in a way that informs the business. I see a lot of companies right now trying to figure that out. I think 2023 will be a big focus on that, of like, how do we actually use this data to empower our company? And a really good person that I know we pulled a clip from was David Ting. I talked to him maybe like 20 episodes ago. He is the chief technology officer at a company called Zeni Optical. I do not normally talk to CTOs. That is Albert's world. And at first I was like, why is this person coming on my show? It was actually such a great episode and probably one of my favorite. And it was a really good reminder that why more of these leaders probably need to cross pollinate what they're doing. Because having a CTO come on a commerce show uh, and highlight how essentially the world of direct-to-consumer has so much low-hanging fruit. By him just coming into a D2C company after working in like SaaS businesses for so long, he comes in, he's like, oh, there's opportunity everywhere. I can save us eight figures here. I can do this. I can do that. And so just bringing in a different mindset into some of these newer companies, I just saw how powerful it can be and how they come in with a different angle of how do we take all this data that we have and then also balance it with business know-how and intuition and just being able to actually like run the company. So let's play David's clip here where... I'm getting this inspiration from.
0: I only been here for two months. I actually found ways to improve the margin by 15, 20%. One of the issues with traditional industries is that you don't have data. So everybody start guessing. So what I did was I started use data to do approximation. So then you do like p analysis on everything we do. So for example, like we have a merchandising team So they go in, and the way they did it was like, my competitors are running these promotions. I just copy them. So they're running a 30% off. I'm doing a 30% off. So they don't think, because there's no data tied behind, understand the cost, understanding how much business it brought in. One of the first things we did was, we didn't have the data warehouse yet, but I just do it through approximation. Don't have to have exact data to run through the model. Found out that we are about to lose eight figures a year. And then we start diving deep. And then it's really because we don't analyze our competitors' prices. So we're priced 40% cheaper than anybody else's. So then you apply the same coupon, we're 40% cheaper than their coupon, then we're actually just eating straight into margin, right? So that was something I found. And then we dug into it. And then I was looking at the PLC. I said, there's something wrong here. And we found massive saving. That, That was actually a huge increase in margin.
2: He was a great example of how to think holistically about a company. He didn't just stay in his world, which I really liked. He was like, hey, there's data in all these worlds. Let me go help the P&L and the finance area and marketing. And I mean, he really got into all the different groups. And I just liked the way he thought cross-functionally, which I don't always get to hear about, but maybe it's also because I'm just talking to founders and CEOs and chief digital officers and whatnot. But Albert, I know that you probably, I saw you shaking your head with the David clip talking about like, you don't really need exact data. And I'm like, that's Albert right there.
3: I loved it. When he said that, I, I loved know. it. I was like, this is exactly my guy. <laughs> he sees something and he has a hunch, right? He's got a hunch something might be wrong. And I think a lot of us people in, whether we're in small business, which we are in, or someone is in a larger company, which has analysts like full-time job, You get mired in this idea that you have to know the exact answer, but you don't. You just need to have like some directional idea, like what is this? Right. The other thing I liked him, I mean, this is this is great, was him just saying like one layer of why. Like, well, why is that? Why are we matching their coupons? And I think that's the ultimate indicator that you deserves an investigation when someone's response is like not really clear. Oh, I don't know, or my competitor does it. It's like that's not a really good reason to do something. And so I think him saying, like you identified, Steph, just, I observe this data point. I ask a question. They say they don't really know. And now that it opens the door. It's like, well, let's find out. Is this even worth our time? For anyone out there listening, any Optical is already a discount eyewear brand. You heard the clip. They already have the least expensive eyewear for them to do another 30%. You guys can do some math, but he said it's eight figures, so. <laughs> yeah, that
2: doesn't make sense. Yeah, and that's just one of, I mean, he started naming off projects that he has been working on, and he, this dude is doing that everywhere, which I love. I mean, yeah, just the way he thinks, I'm like, oh, yeah, we need more people like this. Because even, I mean, we've gotten caught up in that, like, we don't have exact data. How do we know? It's like, well, we can figure it out with some approximate data. Like, that's all you need.
1: Yeah, I mean, Kev- Kevin Warren, uh, CMO for, for UPS, UPS Fortune 34. He talked about this, you know, when he first joined as, as the CMO, I mean, they, they were swimming in data at UPS. They had reports on reports and literally it was so much information, it was too much, right? And then he started to, to support the team. And how do you make this move from data to information, information to knowledge and knowledge to insights, and then insights into like giving you that predictive element, right? And so he was able to really distill what they really needed. And if you look at, you know, UPS year over year, you'll see they're doing quite well. They're no longer stuck and mired because a lot of organizations, the big ones especially, have so much data.
3: My person is actually a combination of both of yours.
2: Okay. Tell us more.
3: <laughs> you know, we've had a lot of great guests throughout the year. And for those of you that are not familiar with David Hanemeyer Hansen, he's one of the more popular people, I would say, in the tech industry. He's co founder and CTO of a company called 37 Signals. Which is the maker of a product called Basecamp. Now, Basecamp itself is not a big thirty-seven is not a big company, not at all. It's under eighty employees. I think they have seventy. But what makes him and his uh, business partner Jason Fried quite interesting is they seemingly have this ability to do so much with so few. And if you're thinking about resources or people, they do more with less than anybody else arguably in the industry. Probably Craigslist does the most with less. I think Craigslist revenue is like a billion dollars a year and they only have 50 employees. They're not quite Craigslist, but they are vocal. And so we get to hear their voices quite often. And I think the fun part about meeting David this past year was he kind of supported what I believe in, which is like, there's probably a really great way to do something that's not as hard. I naturally don't like for, I'll I'll share a little bit about myself or your audiences, um, Jeremy and Stephanie, that don't listen to me. Like I naturally,
2: or they might. They yeah.
3: Well, I gravitate towards doing, being able to do more with less. Um, Being huge is never an interest of mine. Uh, Being, you know, I'm not really sure what you know. Some people they aspire to be a billionaire. Fantastic. I don't know what you're doing that I can't do, because the number one thing I enjoy the most is being out in the middle of the ocean surfing. And last time I checked. Whether you have a billion dollars or ten dollars, like I'm gonna have the same amount of fun when I do that. Now, other things you get to do better than me for sure. (laughs) But when I'm out in the ocean, that's what I care about. You know, we're about to play a clip from David. He is a combination of the two things we covered. Not in this clip, but inside of 37 Signals Basecamp, how they started this company was this idea of fierce independence. So that itself is a culture, which is we want to stay small, we want to stay lean, we want to experiment, and so he. And they have built a company that defined that. So, you know, they've been on the wrong side or maybe on the negative side of public light as well, because they had a policy once come out where they say, hey, we're no longer going to talk about politics. And that is a thing. And people raised their hand and said, I don't want to be a part of that. I'm leaving you. And they kind of said, understood. And they were willing to sacrifice losing some really great people but they held firm to what they believe in. And so they have a set standard of how they operate the company. And then they're kind of like David as well in that they they don't think you need to know everything. You just need to know a direction.
1: Yeah, I was just gonna say 37signal, just such a cool brand. And Albert, I love that you got to to chat with this guy. And man, they they leave a lot of clues for businesses big and small. So i love to see this one.
5: And do you know what? The data won't tell you either we are not a data-driven organization in that regard. We are an organization driven on intuition and experience. And those two things are sometimes very hard to quantify, but they allow you to make those kind of leaps that the lack of data keeps many organizations from making. There are a lot of organizations who have been entrawled in- with this sort of Google motto of, do you know what? We have to pick a, a shade of blue. Let's try 129 different versions of it. And we'll A, B the whole thing to the moon. And we'll pick the one, whatever that does best, right? Which is a great way of getting these local optimus, local maximizations that does not consider the entire picture. And in this data Spewing world that we have today, where literally there are faucets of data just open, spewing out everywhere. It seems like that. That is the logical, rational thing to do. To be data driven is a compliment in most circles. I don't actually think it's a compliment. Not as a overarching strategy for how you run product. No, you need to be intuition-driven. That intuition should be informed. By some data, some of the time, to some of the questions where that makes sense. But I found that there are fewer of the important questions that can be answered by data. And if you try to push it too hard, then you end up in a bad place. And the problem here is that relying on intuition means relying on someone who's then possibly to blame, which means that it relies on little courage. In the face of the unknown, do you dare go forth? with your best ideas for how things should work. And if those ideas come up flat and don't turn out, what happens then? In some organizations, maybe you get your head chopped off, right? In our organization, we accept that we will be wrong. This intuition will take us down blind alleys sometimes. And when we hit a blind alley, we say, oh, well, that's the price of having an intuition. Let's turn back and go the other way. And that's fine. Most decisions, most of the times are reversible, particularly when it comes to product development. And it's the only way you can develop this kind of intuition is by making calls, many of them moving on and keeping up the pace. This is the other problem with data. It takes too damn long to collect the right data. It's expensive to collect. It's complicated to actually get right. You really need people who can figure it out. If we had to base every decision we make at 37 cycles on data, we would never make even a hundredth of the decisions that we're making. And we need to be making decisions all the time and moving on, because this is how we can keep the pace.
1: I love that. This is the kind of conversation I'd love to be in there with you, Albert. I mean, what a cool cat. And I love the fact that he's talking about how, how much they value intuition. But I think on the flip side of that, you can quantify that. You can quantify the results of that. It's like, hey, if you you know, it may not be there may not be history, historical you know success, but they're obviously trusting this intuitive pulse in the company, and it's led to things that they certainly can quantify. But I just love how he is really saying the opposite of what a lot of companies are saying when it comes to this stuff. And what do you think, Steph?
2: Yeah, when he talked about the Google, all the blue colors, I'm like, (laughs) yep, that's a lot of the teams that I worked around where they're like, hold on, we gotta A, B, Z, X test this. And I'm like, pretty sure we already, you know, survey everyone in this team and everyone else, like, I don't know. The one thing that I was thinking about was I had on, uh, I was interviewing an executive from Pepsi and she and I were talking about like AI models and how many companies are like AI everything. And many of these models were trained off of poor history we're trained off of 2021, 2022, and consumers are very different than how they might be over the coming years. And so that was what was coming to mind around like how to tap into your intuition more of like, okay, I know the model's telling me this, but this actually feels like 2020 predictions and not go for predictions because we're changing every single minute. I mean, consumers are so different where we are today versus two months ago or whatever. So that's a trap that I think companies can get into, especially when it comes to like predictive modeling if you're using false historical data. Well, it was true in the time, but it's not true going forward, so gotta be careful.
3: One hundred bajillion percent. Is that a number because- (laughs) Oh, it is. Data can only tell you what has happened. It is no way of indicating or predicting the future. And if it can, you're probably measuring something quite small. And that's something David talks about in, or DHH as he's known. He likes, he says in his episode, he talks about like, hey, if you're making all this measurements, to make a small change, you will need even more measurements to see what it did. Mm-hmm. And he basically said, you, you're basically going after the smallest things. He says, if you're gonna do something big, there's gonna be no number to prove that this is gonna work. And I used to do this talk with one of my former companies in software. We talked about human intuition and I, I used to use different case examples, but I, you know, I'll go over a couple. Nick Woodman is the founder of GoPro. When he started GoPro, no one else thought to make a camera so small and, more waterproof and indestructible in ca- uh, very durable casing. No one thought about it. None of the camera companies thought about it. None of the big major players in electronics, consumer electronics thought about it. He thought about it. So why is that? So imagine if you were in a camera company at that time and brought that idea to your boss, your boss would say, well, how many people want it? Well, not, nobody wants it. Nobody's talking about it. Well, how many, oh, it doesn't have a viewfinder. If you remember GoPro when it started, had no viewfinder, you could not see it. Oh, but it doesn't have a viewfinder. Like your design doesn't have a viewfinder. How many, do a survey. How many customers want cameras without viewfinders? It would probably come back that nobody wanted them. When he actually even launched the brand and he was at consumer electronics shows, people would be like, dude, that thing sucks. It doesn't have this feature. It doesn't have that feature. It doesn't have this feature. And so what he would do is he would stand at the very top of the stage, grab his GoPro and slam it on the ground. He's like, this is what life does to cameras. Show me your camera. I want to see how it does. And no one would give <laughs> right, them their camera. Right. So he was basically saying, you guys aren't seeing the future. Mm-hmm. In the future, people are going to want to capture their lives. And life happens in, in, you know, in exact places. And he was, of course, right. And this happened with Spanx. You know, Sarah Blakely is one of my favorite entrepreneurs, right? Oh, women don't want pantyhose to come over their bellies.
2: Yeah, they want to look better. Yeah.
3: Well, yeah, because there's no data to show it. So big, that's why yeah. Spanx wasn't invented by a hosiery company, because there was no data to show that it would work.
2: Yeah, you solve your own problems. And that's what they were doing. I mean, it's funny. I'm reading uh, a book right now by uh, Square's co-founder, Jim McKelvey, wrote called The Innovation Stack. And I was telling Jeremy about this the other day where he talks about, you know, what is a true entrepreneur? It's those people. They don't have anything to show them why their idea is going to work and they're going to take the risk anyways. Even if the market's not there, even if no one really is around them saying they really want it, like they're solving their own problem or they see an opportunity, it probably would make some people upset hearing this. But he also goes into how... Our environment right now everyone says they're entrepreneurs <laughs> like no matter what they're doing even if they're like reinventing the wheel even if they're doing <laughs> something similar they have like a car wash business they are in corporate america he like goes on this rant how like everyone thinks they're entrepreneurs these days and that's just like the trendy word but really the ones are like you're talking about the gopro founder sarah blakely like the ones who are taking a risk that they have nothing to show them why this should work other than their intuition
3: So, Stephanie and I have a common favorite entrepreneur, which is James (laughs) Dyson. And James Dyson famously, when he showed his first pro, so first of all, it took him 3,127 tries to get it to work to to begin with. So, he got it to work and he goes to the different vacuum manufacturers thinking that he'll sub license the vacuums to them. And they look at him like, why is the canister clear? And then they're like, well, people want to see. He's like, well, I think people want to see how much dirt it's getting up. Like, oh, that's terrible. No one wants to see that. No one wants to see that. And so not only did they not want the technology, that's a big fail, they were completely wrong because now not only are Dyson canisters totally clear, which fill it with dirt, and I do get some satisfaction being like, oh, it's full of crap. <laughs> you know oh, yeah. I mean? Great. But the other manufacturers have followed suit, Bissell, Dirt Devil, they all have clear canisters now too. So that's exactly like something as simple as that. It's like, what data do you have to show that uh, a clear canister is going to sell better than back in the day, vacuums had little bags and like it was completely hidden from human sight. He's mm-hmm. like, I got no data. Mm-hmm. Nothing.
2: <laughs> yeah,
3: I just think people will like it because I like it.
2: <laughs> mm-hmm. It brings so many inspiring ways to think about how to empower employees in the coming years to work from that, work from that like intuitive place of like, well, I think this could work. Like, how can you let them make bets? Whereas, you know, the past many years have been like, show me your data and show me your whole case study on why it's going to work versus like, show me things that actually many people might not think will work. That could get interesting.
3: And that plays right into what Jeremy's guest talked about, right? So they, he, they've he they established a company. You're going to work in small teams. So if you don't want to work in small teams, don't go there, right? <laughs> they've built a culture where they encourage you. They they totally recognize you might be wrong. And that's key, right? To keep innovating. It's like, okay, well, you're wrong.
2: Figure it out now. <laughs> yep. So I know guys were running up on time. I did want to hint, like, quickly go around the horn on, like, 2023 because I would love to make some predictions now and then circle back and see if any of us were right. And it can be a very wide one and we only have 7 minutes. So, Jeremy. Yes. Short and sweet. 2023, what's it going to look like for marketing leaders?
1: 2023, I'm going to I'm going to take a page out of a conversation I had with Pepper Evans. Pepper Evans is the Senior VP of Marketing at Optum, part of United Health Group. United Health Group is fortune number five, hashtag fortune number five. But she talked about having to become more efficient. A lot of that comes down to, she says, capabilities. So implementing personalization to become more impactful in companies' marketing, looking at talent that they have already, looking at the teams that they rely on to execute their work internally, making sure that everything is working as it should, and then making changes because the way that they did things and the way companies did things 10 years ago or even one year ago, is very different than how it should be done today. So they're testing new channels, they're testing more content marketing, search engine marketing and social and that haven't really been done before. And they're seeing how they can really, you know, connect and impact the customer
2: experience. Cool. Albert, over to you. High level, what's happening in your world, 2023?
3: This is not gonna happen in my world, but this is gonna happen because of two of the guests that I've had on the show. What happened during the recession? Well, more independent people, because they didn't couldn't work, had to figure out a way to earn an income. And so it matched the demand to be self-independent and work and the tooling was now there. And so people could start building their own businesses with less tools. So now we're more in a knowledge economy than ever. We had Mahesh Guruswamy. He's the CTO of a company called Kajabi. Kajabi helps monetize your knowledge. I was so impressed. First of all, I read some numbers on Kajabi before the interview ever happened and they've already, they're already doing $4 billion in course revenue. And most people that do these courses are people like me, just regular dudes sitting here in my bedroom trying to do something. And so I was like, holy cow. And some of it, their chefs, even their chefs are doing $50,000 a month. I was like, this is insane. Like these people are just one person are doing knowledge platforms to monetize knowledge platforms. So there's already a company called ConvertKit, which is also extremely popular for this. Kajabi is on the rise. I told Mahesh and I promised him that I would give it a try. And I did. That's what got me to start my landlording course, Mm -hmm. which launched today. I'll plug it later. The timing is here, which is you're going to have a lot of people that might be displaced from work. Work might be more challenging to get, but now there's even more tooling available to you to monetize other parts. So if you don't know how to make products to sell, maybe you could sell your knowledge. And I think the rise of knowledge sales is going to happen big time.
2: Mm, that's a good one. I like that. All right. I will end it off with my prediction. I'm going to keep it to the commerce world. I feel like mine are a little downers. I'm going to try and figure out a spin at the end of it. But I think there's going to be a big refocus on costs for these commerce companies. I mean, so many of them spun up over the past couple of years. I think going forward, we're going to see them probably scale back some of their like extra generous programs that they had. And, you know, they're going to have to just look at their costs because margins are really getting squeezed right now. And I mean, there's just so many direct to consumer companies right now that are out there trying to figure it out and how they operated over the past couple of years, being able to operate in a way that might not have been profitable, being able to just, you know, grow quickly and focus on ads and all that. I mean, there's going to be a big shift coming. So I think that, yeah, we'll just see a shaky year of the ones who were operating under good business principles will be the ones that rise to the top and many will sadly disappear. However, that means the best ones will rise to the top. That's my spin to try and make it a little more positive and not pessimistic.
1: Still a silver lining. There's still that silver lining.
2: Yeah, yeah. But I still think it's gonna be a good year. A good year to be able to refine business principles and actually make great products while also making sure you have a good business behind the scenes. That's all I got.
3: Full summary, do what you want, make good
2: That's it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, what he said, and I'll say this, look, don't buy into the narrative that there's not a lot of opportunity out there for you, for businesses. Look, there's a ton of opportunity. Like Albert just said, and we're talking, we just had the VP of branding at Indeed in our studio. They have visibility into jobs and careers. Like there is a lot of opportunity that you can create yourself or go connect to a vision out there Small, medium, large-sized businesses. There's a lot out there, so go get it. All
2: right. Thanks,
3: y'all. See you next year.
1: Peace. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels but delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences so you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot content management system has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.